right. Uh, okay, so we're in Numbers 11. I want to begin, though, in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. If you ever hear a preacher doing that, it probably means he hasn't found it yet. First Corinthians 10. Okay. And this is a verse that we come back to often when we're going through the, the five books of Moses, uh, the journeys, you could call it. Uh, because it really does tell us what the story should mean for us, all right? And this really sums it up very well. So I'm just going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father, I pray that you would open your word, Lord, that we would truly take heed as we go through these chapters in Numbers, uh, God, that, that we would hear the, the, the instruction, Lord, that they were written down for, that it would, that would speak deeply. Even those of us, Lord, who have heard this passage uh, many times and who have heard, uh, have gone through this study many times, uh, Lord, this is a word that we need to come back to over and over and remember. And, uh, Lord, clearly we see the story itself um, gives, us, gives us the warning that we need. That even though you have you worked wonders, even though you may have uh, met us in powerful ways in the past, Lord, we still need to remember you. And so, Lord, help us to do that tonight as we approach the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you can go to Numbers 11. And I kind of want to do what I did last week, which is just sort of walk through uh, and then tie up some thoughts at the end. Uh, point out some things, and then uh, if, there, if there are questions, we can do that. But I, I do want to end tonight with communion, uh, simply because that's the answer to it all, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, that the secret is, is partaking of Christ in the midst of whatever challenge, of whatever reason to give up, 
that there is. Whatever temptation or test that we're experiencing, the secret is to partake of Christ. We can fail and we can fall in the wilderness or we can endure the test and, and find ourselves in the promised land. Um, so that's why we'll come to the table as sort of a, a response to the word tonight. There's no, we, we know what the encouragement is. Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians 10. That's the, that's the message tonight. So let's just go through Numbers uh, 11 through 17 and pull out a few points. So in chapter 11, uh, we, again, we talked about last week, the silver trumpets were sounding the march. And everything was going well. And it's not even, you don't even get three steps into the journey. And it says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. Uh, Some translations just say, um, so at the end of chapter 10, and when he rested, when it rested, it said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And when the people complained, (laughs) that's the very next sentence. Yay, great, forward march. And when they complained, it says, in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Um, I saw Kelly Hahn, he, he preached on this section last night at TCF. Um, I would encourage you to go listen to it. He sent out his notes, and uh, he sent it out to TCF. I'm on their mailing list. And he talked a lot about um, the idea of what, what God hears and what we say. And if you go through this passage, there's, in many times there's God's displeased with something that comes out of someone's mouth. Right? And that was sort of where he, where he uh, spent a lot of time. He, he did a great job with it. So I encourage you to, to listen to that as well. Um, but here they complain. And it says in verse 4, The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic... But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all to look at but this manna. <laughs> There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They are, this is a, this is a situation where they're, they, they, they have food, right? And so it's not like before where they had no food. God has provided food. Now, what the, now it says that they, they begin to lust, right? They're not, they're not hungry, they're lustful. In other words, they're being fed, but they're not happy with what they're being fed. Okay? And there's a subtle difference. right? When you're hungry, you can act in one way. But this is just, here we have this manna, and it says um, they had a strong craving. And I love King James. It says they fell a-lusting. <laughs> here we go, a-lusting. <laughs> they fell a-lusting. They began to lust. Okay? And what was the desire for? Some perverse form of sexuality? No. The desire was for leeks and onions and garlic. Right? See, I mean, basic pantry items these days. <laughs> but what's, what, what, what displeased God about that? And I think, it's, I think what displeased God about that most is that he says there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Oh, you mean the miraculous bread from heaven? There's nothing but miraculous bread from heaven to look at. All right, so they became dissatisfied. And their desire was for garnishments and, and, and additional flavor and additional savoriness. 
more, embellishment, okay? Simple, plain manna was not enough anymore. Even though it says the taste was of fresh oil. Um, and so what they, what they, they begin to mourn just the, the simplicity of their food. Right? They don't mourn the absence of food, they mourn the simplicity of food. And lust after uh, the flavors of Egypt. Let's just put a little flavor on this manna. Let's spice it up a little bit. Okay, and you can see, uh, you can see the principle begin to, to crystallize here. Jesus is the bread of life. Right? He has come down from the Father. He who eats this bread will never hunger again. We receive him every day. There's always enough. And we, and we receive, and there's never any lack. And those who gather too much, uh, it, it goes bad. And those who don't gather as much as someone else, they have enough. Right? Every day we partake of God. Give us this day our daily bread. But there, there remained within them, and we need to believe that there remains within us, desires that were placed there, that were shaped there uh, by Egypt, by a time in the world. We have worldly desires that begin to arise within us. And so we are thankful for God and we, and we partake of God, but then we begin to take that for granted. And we begin to say, these desires aren't being met. And I, yes, the gospel's great, but let's put some else, let's put some other stuff on top of it. Let's sprinkle some worldliness here. Let's sprinkle some pleasing this, that, and that. Let's get the garlic of, of sensuality. Let's get some of this uh, preference that I have. Let's spice it up a little bit. All right? And with this, God is not pleased. And it says, now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedellium. The only other place in the Old Testament where bedellium is used is when it's describing the land of the Garden of Eden. It was a good land. There was gold there, and there was bedellium and onyx there. Right? This was food that literally looked like Eden. It looked like heaven. Right? This is heavenly food. And they, become, they don't understand that. What they see is what it lacks. They don't see what it is. Okay? And this is going to become a theme all through this story. How do you see stuff? How do you interpret the data that is in front of you? Okay? How do you, how do you interpret this bread? How do you receive it? Does it get boring? Or do you, and, and do you see what it lacks? Or do you see what it really is? It, it, it reflects Eden. It reflects paradise. This is a, a foretaste of the promised land flowing with milk and honey. So they didn't see what the bread was. They didn't see the significance of it. All right. So then they complain. And Moses, uh, Moses has a moment <laughs> with God. And he sort of has a crisis. Right. And, and it's easy to think that in Exodus, God had finished his processing of Moses. And now he's the head of his people. No, no. There's, there's a lot left of processing in Moses' own heart. And so Moses kind of has it out with God, and he says, why did you stick me with this people? And God has him there, right? And God doesn't respond harshly. And in fact, uh, in, in the next chapter, God leaps to his defense. Um, but here we see Moses really speaking, coming, it's coming out of his heart, and it is frustration. Um, so God graciously actually gives him a, a, some relief and some help and aid. And he takes some of the spirit that's on Moses and he p- puts it on 
some of the elders that are in the camp. And you see Moses' uh, humility when Joshua, which this is one of the places that you see Joshua um, early in the story. Joshua and another guy um, come and tell on these two guys. And it reminds me of the prophets in Jesus where someone's doing something and say, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? And he rebukes them. Right? This is like, Moses, these guys are prophesying in the camp. And, says, Moses, and Moses says, great, we should all be prophets. We should all be filled with the, the Spirit. Right? That's, that's what the whole point is. This is what we want. This is a good thing. This is not something to shut down. Um, and so again, you see, they see something and interpret it one way. And Moses says, well, but the other way to look at it <laughs> is this. That's what we should all be doing. Would that everyone had the Spirit on them. Okay? And this is what eventually the church ended up being. The Spirit fell and everyone was filled now with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so at the end of chapter 11, it says, The name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava because they buried the people who had the craving. Right? They died. Their lust killed them in the wilderness. And this is one of the warnings that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10. Desired evil. What number says is they desired garlic <laughs> and leeks. Worldly Egyptian garnishments to the provision of God, and God won't have any of them. Chapter 12, Moses and Aaron, or Moses, uh, Miriam and Aaron have an issue with Moses. And this is a curious section. There's a lot, of, it kind of moves really fast. Um, but it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. You wonder, what, what does it have to do with anything? Because it doesn't really mention that again in the rest of the story. <laughs> what, what I think is, that was sort of the surface disagreement they had. But what was really underneath was this jealousy for Moses' position of status. Okay? Um, Aaron isn't mentioned in... in when the elders get the, the spirit, Aaron's not mentioned. So maybe he felt like he got the shaft a little bit and Miriam was sort of uh, siding with him saying, yeah, what, what, what's up with this? But it says that uh, the, for he had married a Cushite woman and that's most likely just referring to Zipporah, his wife, because she was not an Israelite. She was from Midian after when he, you know, he was in, the, uh, in Midian for 40 years. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. See, he's always hearing these overflows of the mouth. Right? Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. It's an amazing verse. Okay, and I don't think that... Um, what, what it's saying here is basically Moses was going to let it slide. Moses wasn't going to respond to that question. He wasn't going to defend himself because the next verse says, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. This is like the most fatherly, I think, one of the most fatherly places in that. You know, you're three. All right, you three right here now. <laughs> come out you three to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And it really does seem like a scene right out of my family room uh, after, <laughs> after something bad has happened. Uh-oh. And the Lord came down. So basically, he, comes, he jumps to Moses' aid. And he says, I do have a special relationship 
with him. Okay, this is not, this is not a question. All right? You have no idea the way that I speak with him. He's like, you see all these prophets? They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're kind of jealous of it? Well, that's nothing compared with what I have with Moses. It's essentially what he says. He says, so you're jealous about all this stuff. Well, Moses is my God. He is the one that I have made to the deliverer and the head of this people. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moses? I've named him. I've placed him at the head. Why were you not afraid to let your words just fly up and fly out and, and, and just go released into the wild, right? Your words mean something. And the anger of the Lord was kindled. And um, so Miriam, she turns leprous and it's white, white as snow, right? And this is like the same thing that happened when Moses put his hand in his cloak before. It's white as snow, right? And... Um, you wonder, why, why that? What, what, was, what was the deal? And some people think that it's because she had the complaint about his Cushite wife, which was basically dark-skinned wife. Um, not necessarily African-American, but sort of darker, you know, darker-skinned people. Um, and that there was, there's sort of an ironic flip that Miriam just becomes ash-white. <laughs> yeah, why don't you just... Come on, whitey, you know, go, be white for seven days. Uh, we have this complaint against Moses. Uh, and then Aaron, Aaron, uh, he knows, he has a sense, right? Moses has a special relationship with God because right when Miriam turns white and leprous, who does he plead to? Not to God, but to Moses. Moses, do something, right? He knows in, in an emergency, Moses is the guy. And then Moses turns and pleads to the Lord and intercedes. So Aaron intercedes for Miriam to Moses. And then Moses intercedes for her to the Lord. So yes, it's it's showing this special relationship that God has with Moses. Um, So that was kind of interesting. Chapters 13 and 14 are very significant. This is where the spies go out, the, the scouts really, um, to survey the land, God sends, uh, or Moses sends 12 guys in. And we, this is a familiar story. We, we know this uh, from Sunday school. And Joshua and Caleb are the ones who, uh, who come back with a good report. And the other spies come back full of, of fear and paranoia. Um, but the difference in the two accounts has to do with the heart. And this is one of the things that Chad talked about this morning that was excellent. That... Um, it wasn't their eyes that saw different things. It was their heart that interpreted those things in different ways. Caleb and Joshua saw, yeah, there's giants in the land, and God's going to do to him what he did to the Red Sea, right? Yeah, more giants are going to fall. And the other guys said, yeah, they're giants, and they're going to squash us like bugs. Right? So it has everything to do with what, what your heart really believes. Um, and Chad talked this morning about uh, the imagination, that what fills our heart, what shapes our heart, is, is what we imagine. There's a gap between what God promises, very often what God promises, right? He's sending them into the land, what he promises, and then what we end up seeing in the land. Oh, there's giants. 
And what fills in that gap, God says this is our land, there's lots of giants in the land, what fills in that gap is whatever's in our imagination. So if your imagination is full of fear and doubt, then what bridges the gap between God says we're going to do this and there's giants here is, well, it must not really be uh, what God really wants, and we can't do this. this is, we can't. This is not going to happen. Joshua and Caleb were full of imaginations about the, the power and the faithfulness of God. And so when they saw that, God promises this, but there's, there's big giants in the land. Well, God must be getting ready to do something awesome, right? And it's like when David comes up and Goliath is standing there, right? And everyone else is afraid. And David goes, what's with this guy? <laughs> you know, why, 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 is, why is everyone afraid? Right? This, someone's got to do something about this guy. Does he know who our God is? Well, let's go, right? And so David was full he was a guy who was full, his imagination was full of, of the possibilities of who God was and his power and his might. Um, so that happens in chapter 13. Um, and then in 14, God has to deal with this, right? And he, this is, this is the, a sad chapter because this is where they get sentenced to uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And basically that whole generation because of their fear and because of their rebellion, their whole generation is going to have to die prior to getting into the wilderness. <clears throat> um, there's a great part, and this really sums up uh, what the difference was in Caleb. Verse 22, chapter 14. None of the other men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. Right? They saw my signs. They saw what I'm capable of. And then they saw the land and they could not, <laughs> they could not put two and two together. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. So that different spirit. I love how this is kind of a vague phrase, but it's like there's that something. You know people who have that something. They know God in that way. They have that different spirit. But they don't worry about the same things the rest of us worry about. <laughs> right? God give us that different spirit and help us to be that kind of person that where 10 people go shaking in their boots, we're the ones that, that believe it can happen. Um, chapter 15 is full of laws. And um, Chad made this point, and it's, it's a point that you always have to make in numbers. There are different, it's kind of chopped up. Numbers has stories, and then it pauses for laws. And um, you always have to, when it, when it does that, it would behoove you to read those laws in light of what has been going on in the story, right? So he particularly talked this morning about the tassels on the garments, right? It seems a little bit random. Why is he talking about tassels on garments here in the middle of this story? Um, and what the tassels are, are an object of remembrance. And it says in, uh, I mean, Stephen opened up with this verse. I'll read it again. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, 
to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which, are, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. Remember who I am. Wear these tassels to remember. Um, Chapter 16 and 17 uh, deal with another rebellion. First it was Moses' family, Miriam and Aaron. Now it's a a whole tribe, or not a tribe, but sort of a clan within a tribe. It's Korah. And um, there's 250 men that rise up and say, hey, we, we've got something too. We've got gifts too. We've got anointing too. We don't need to listen to Moses. We don't like his direction. We don't like the vision that he's, that he's set. It seems pretty, pretty ominous. And I don't think we're going to make it out of this wilderness, which they already aren't. <laughs> they already decided that for themselves earlier. Um, he brought us out here to die. Well, no, God brought you out here to take you into the promised land, and you decided to stay here and die. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what happened. Um, but this is another instance where the authority of Moses is challenged. Uh, really, God's designated authority. People start to see things and say, well, no, I think that it should be like this. And God responds in no uncertain, no uncertain terms. Right? No, it will be this way. And he follows that up with chapter 17, which is, a, which is an awesome uh, passage of scripture about Aaron's staff. He says, let's get all the staffs. All right, the one that buds, then you know that is the leader. And Aaron's staff that budded actually ends up in the Ark of the Covenant. It's one of the three things in the Ark of the Covenant. This is an important moment. God's ordained leadership. It's important for you to know who that is and to submit yourself to God's ordained leadership. So God responds to the rebellion by arranging this, this um, sign of Aaron's budding staff. And that's where we, that's where we end uh, sort of our reading from this week. So I have some thoughts about this section. It's, this is all about God revealing to the Israelites what's in their heart. And he uses every aspect of life on the journey. All right? we, we, so he uses food. He uses leadership, and he uses obstacles to possessing the land, right? The food on the way, the leadership that's in charge, the direction that's being set, and the obstacles that we encounter. And their response reveals to them, I mean, God already knows what's in their heart, but their response reveals to themselves what's actually in their heart. Okay, they go through a, a, a trial with food. They have complaints against authority. They come up against obstacles to possessing the land. And what comes out of their mouths is the abundance of their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in all these situations, something comes out of the mouth that indicates the state of the heart. As it turns out, their hearts are full of rebellion, mistrust, Pride, ungratefulness, and fear. And Paul would say, our hearts are the same. Our hearts are the same. And if we're to listen to the lesson, we need to examine ourselves. So here's here's how we can examine ourselves. How do I respond to challenges? 
Whatever's represented by either a lack of food, hunger, or just the kind of food. How do I respond to that? Um, it can be pressure, right? When we, t- when we talk about challenges on our, in our lives, if we're talking about us now in, in these days, what are these challenges that come? It can either be acute pressure situations, right? Crises. What comes out in those moments reveals to us what's in our heart. Or it can be like the manna. It can be just plain drudgery, lack of, lack of excitement, lack of appealing to the cravings and the, and the pleasures that the world has conditioned us to crave, right? Um, both of those situations we consider challenges. This is really hard in the moment. Ah! Or, man, year after year. I mean, this is the same songs we sing. It's the same guy that we listen to every Saturday night, and he's goes on forever and half the time I don't know what he's talking about and it's the same weirdo wearing a muumuu in, in the front row and you know it's the same people and it's a long time right we come up and we read the same I mean how many times we've been through the Bible we just keep going over around and around through the Bible we just start at the beginning go to the end and we start at the beginning go to the end they keep telling us we need to read our Bible so I'm trying to read my Bible and I just don't get much out of it right this is what comes out is it, it, it betrays us, right? It betrays our thoughts. What, what is really coming out when we get bored with what God has given us? It's a deep ingratitude. It's a total misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And it's really, um, it's really, an, it's like denying the spirit of grace. Right? When we get bored, it's, well, yeah, okay. Sure, I know you read, read, read my Bible, pray every day, and I'll grow, grow, grow. Okay. But that's really it. There's nothing but this man to look at every day. That's paradise. Do you see? It looks like, <laughs> it looks like what, what's in Eden. It's bedellium. Do you see the treasure in the Word? Do you see the treasure in your time in prayer? Okay. So there's kind of two kinds of challenges. The high pressure, I'm hungry, and this is sort of the Esau response. Give me this soup or I'm going to die. We need, let's go back to Egypt, they have water there. Or just the long, drawn out dissatisfaction and disillusionment with the simple truth of the gospel, the simple bread of the word and fellowship and prayer. Right? If we ever find ourselves wanting to spice that up, we, we have to examine ourselves and not subject God's provision in our life to our cravings, right? And not desire that it would look a certain way. So then with the leadership aspect of the journey, the question we can ask ourselves is, how do I view my place among the people of God? Do I try and make a place for myself based on how I view myself? I mean, these guys, these 250 guys were like, hey, we're going to start something new. (laughs) We're going to do something different. We've got some ideas. And we're going to make it happen. I've got signatures. I've got a petition. We're going for it. We're, We're making something. Or have I submitted to the truth about myself? Not submitted to someone's opinion of who I am. Submitted to the truth about myself. Because that's what we're called to do. 
And that's what God was reminding them of. Listen, the truth is, Miriam, (laughs) you don't understand what you're talking about. (laughs) And this is my friend. And don't say those things about my friend. He is the God. Hey, Korah and, and followers, guys, Aaron's staff is going to bud. I've said it. It's true. Okay? I am nothing more and nothing less than what God says I am. So if we decide we don't like the ways that God has placed us, and I'm not talking necessarily about the people we submit to, you know, the elders, the pastors or whatever. I'm not necessarily just talking about that. It's submitting to God's placement of you with among a people. Or you have a place. And we're called to find our place. And to submit to God's lordship over us in bringing us together. Placing us together. If we begin to react and say, well, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm this type. I want to be this type. I can play drums just like the rest of them. Or, or whatever. That's an easy target. Well, I'm not, a, I'm not really, I'm not really a, a, a disciple. I'm more of an evangelist. I, I'm just, I want to go out and preach the gospel and let someone else disciple them. No, what we're called to do is know who we are and submit to who we are. And this is something that our culture hates. The idea that we have to, to, to submit to a truth about our identity that we don't get to decide is anathema in our culture, right? And it has gone so far as to, to the biological level, right? No one can tell me I am a woman if I want to be a man. There are even the hard boundaries of biology. We're trying to throw off those bonds, okay? So we need this. We need to understand proper submission to the authority God has placed in our lives. And I'm not just talking about, it's easy to think of, all right, how do I submit to the leader? No, how do you submit to the whole way in which God has defined you and placed you among people? Does that make sense? This is what we rebel against. This is what displeases God when we begin to grumble and complain. I think I need to go somewhere else. Well, look where God placed you. And you can look around and you can see all the problems with it. Or you can look around and you can see the hand of God. It's the same thing. Everyone sees the same thing. It's how we interpret those things. It's what we do with the information that we we perceive. So, the the three things are food, or just basically challenges, right? Provision, those aspects, just the day-to-day life stuff. We've got high-pressure challenges or just kind of more drudgery, plain lack of excitement. The second challenge and second point of examination is how do I view my place among the people of God? Do I wish I was someone different than who I know that he's made me? Or do I embrace that and say, yes, I want to do my part. I want to be in my place. Remember the first part, God spent so much time arranging them and placing them all together before the march. And as soon as they set out, they want, it, they want different food. They want different leaders. God just set it all in place and it's all going awry. Right? I want to be in a different environment. Send me somewhere else. Cravings and uh, accusations against leadership. You can see that idea all through the New Testament, by the way. Where Paul is saying, don't even receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Don't listen to all this 
Don't listen to the rabble, right? We're building churches, and God has his hand on it, and you can't just do with it what you want based on your opinions that day. Third challenge is the obstacles to possessing the land. How do you respond to to the call of God on your life and the vision to possess the land? Right? We have a land. God has called us as a church and us as individuals, us as families to possess a land. And we begin to perceive obstacles to that. Oh, that's hard. Oh, there's people that don't want me to do that. Oh, I have family that thinks that's crazy. I have uh, friends that start to kind of get angry at me when I talk about homeschooling <laughs> or whatever the case is. Right? These obstacles come in. Man, I just I don't have any, enough hours in the day to do what I think God wants me to do. It's going to crush me. I'm a little grasshopper when I look at all the stuff that God has given me to do. Share the gospel. Be a good student. Get married. Raise children. Build a home group. Disciple people. Homeschool. Right? That's, that's a big one. That's a giant. How do we respond when we begin to, when that, the land and the obstacles begin to loom large? You focus on potential failure and how you can be eaten alive by all those things, or do you constantly remind yourself and the people around you of God's faithfulness and his power? Are you simply convinced that God can do and cause you to do what he has called you to do? Caleb was simply convinced. David, in the face of God, was simply convinced. Ah, it's just details. Yeah, but he's nine feet tall. That's just details. Look how heavy his spear is. Just, okay. <coughs> Let me tell you about God. <laughs> there are no numbers that can describe God. That he is, he is the creator of the land that these giants inhabit. So we can be like Caleb and be of a different spirit and take the pressure, take the discontent with our place, and take the obstacles that come our way and have a different spirit about all that and know who God is and persist and continue and we find ourselves in the promised land. We find ourselves in a land flowing with milk and honey, a good land. And it's real. And you can taste it. When you, when you start to go down that road, you can begin to taste it. And you go through a hard patch and you trust God and you come out the other side and you go, ooh, this is good land. This is awesome. I can see it. I can feel it. Right, so that's what we're called to do. We're called to, God brings us out in the wilderness. Right, That's just part of it. How long we spend in the wilderness is up to us. And we can, he says, in every temptation there is given a way of escape. Another, another way to translate that word temptation is not just like enticement and allurement, although it can mean that too. But it's also test. It's a test. Every pressure point, and every pressure point, and every opportunity to fear, and every doubt that I have against the way things are run around here, in every one of those, there's provided a way of escape. And it's by looking to Jesus, clinging to Jesus. All right? So, um, this, is a great, this is a great call to the table. All right? Because we can look at all of that, 
And this is our reminder. This is the tassel on our garments that are going to cause us to remember who our God is, who it is that we are following, who is our master, who is discipling us. It's this one. It says, as often as you do this, you proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. We can cling to Christ. It says, they drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ. It was always Christ. Even back then, it was Christ that got them through. Every time they, got, they made it through, it was Christ. And it's still the same today. All right, so life, our journey, God's dealing, God's hand in our lives, the path that he set in front of us is a narrow road. And it will reveal, it will cause to come out of us what's really in our hearts. Okay, so when you get to a challenge and you hear what comes out of your mouth and the people around you hear it, say, okay, I know what's there. I know where I need to change. I know what I can do now. I know where I need to claim Jesus and see things differently. Right? Because gonna, you're going to get pressed and, and squished and, and jostled around. It's just going to happen. As long as we're alive, that's going to happen. And God is revealing to you. He already knows what's in your heart, but he's revealing to you what's really in your heart. And you can say, oh, I didn't know that it was there. I don't want that to be there. I don't want to die in the wilderness. Jesus, come and help me. I want to feed on you and and become like you. Jesus, I love this about the Gospels. When he went into the wilderness, he was undoing. So it says that the guys were in the land 40 days, right? And they got sentenced to 40 years, a year for every day. Well, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And he was undoing. He got hungry. He got tempted with authority to usurp authority. He, all of the stuff that they went through, he faced and he simply was convinced in who God was. And he just simply responded in scripture and he modeled for us and he undid all of the 40 years of wandering. All right, so this is the one whose life we are coming to partake of. The one who didn't die in the wilderness who went into the wilderness, was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and emerged having triumphed over darkness and evil and every temptation and every, everything. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And this is who calls us to learn his life, to follow him. And this is who pours out grace. So as we come tonight, I want us to receive whatever it is that's, that's causing those... <laughs> thoughts of your heart to come out in your life now whatever it is let's come and and claim christ and feed on christ in that situation amen let's pray